afternoon. We are grateful to have a case that does not have uh, significant portions of the record under seal. <laughs> uh, our next case, uh, Woodcock et al. versus Cumberland uh, County uh, Hospital System, Inc. et al. And we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, I'm Doug Harris of the Greensboro Bar. I represent the uh, plaintiffs, Drs. Woodcock, Waden, Waba, and Dimitri. Um, although this case comes to you in some, in some fashion as, a, as an attorney's fees case, I would suggest respectfully it's more of a 41A dismissal without prejudice case. And I say that because uh, as you're aware, and I'm aware, North Carolina is is more of a forgiving state on 41A dismissals uh, uh, than a lot of states are, and it's worked well for us. It, it provides good good access to justice, and uh, I think it allows attorneys time to correct errors, time to correct problems that they have. Uh, some of those problems come up more commonly in cases with, with contracts, where the contracts are hidden, where things are done behind the scenes, uh, which is alleged here. And, uh, and it comes up commonly where there is a breach of fiduciary duty, which is alleged here. And, and the point is sometimes the attorney, when they're asking their clients, can't really learn all the details that would, they might like to put in a complaint because the, attorney, the clients don't know themselves and you don't really know until you start doing discovery. And uh, as uh, it's worked well for North Carolina to allow dismissal without prejudice under these sorts of circumstances without, without penalty. And Senator Day O'Connor, Justice Senator Day O'Connor, had said, uh, why should we ban the practice that works so well for us in favor of practice that works so poorly for others? And so uh, it, 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 makes a, it makes a lot of sense. Um, the case of uh, Briss and Sandrell, which is in my, which is in my brief, uh, notes that you can, have, uh, you can have a dismissal without prejudice for, uh, uh, because you fear a rule violation, they might be dismissed because you you pleaded you had pleading shortcomings, evidentiary failures, uh, anything's all right really, as long as you're not dismissing in bad faith. And some of the examples of bad faith I can think of that you know help illustrate what we all know to be true. Uh, for instance, in uh, in Greensboro, Judge Patrice Hennett, who who was one of our judges in Greensboro, uh, she she said in open court. I'm going to dismiss the case, direct the defendant to draw an order, and the plaintiff went right downstairs and filed a dismissal without prejudice. And that was, you know, you can see why that'd be found to be bad faith. Uh, another case, uh, another case, Estrada versus Burnham, uh, it was filed solely for the purpose of extending the statute of limitations and not in the way we usually do, where we, 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 we file it, then we have, learn we have trouble and that sort of thing. It was, uh, the, the, the attorney admitted he never even tried to serve the case or anything. It was just a, just a blanket thing. They found that to be an abuse of discretion. And we don't have anything of that nature here in a way of an abuse of discretion. Uh, I think what, the issue here has to do with claims that were brought in individual capacities that seem to be um, uh, recover, <coughs> properly brought uh, as uh, derivative claims. At, at, at what point should the plaintiff have known that the claims that were being brought should have been brought in as derivative claims? Your Honor, uh, this is something that came upon us over, over a period of time to, to realize what's going on. And, uh, and even, the court, even the court stated in, in, uh, in open court in the record that uh, this was kind of an open question. Uh, it was more settled with, with uh, LLCs and, and corporations than it was with uh, with limited partnerships as this was. Even the judge himself stated it was unsettled. So it wasn't at all clear to me that we were necessarily going to lose that point. What was clear to me is that after we'd done considerable discovery, it's quite clear to me that I wanted to uh, withdraw, the, I could either amend it, which I thought was a bad idea because it, it, was, it needed so much change. I thought the, the proper thing to do would be to withdraw it without prejudice and refile it, which, I've done before in certain cases, and that was particularly true here because we learned a whole lot of things we didn't know. So I thought that was a proper use of the, of the Rule 41 dismissal, and, and conversely, did not show we were acting in bad faith. There ought to be attorney's fees uh, under whether they're individual pleadings or whether they weren't. Uh, that, was our, that was our feeling on it, Your Honor. 
can i just ask you to be a little more specific about what things you learned that you didn't know before it and in particular how they related to the lack of standing yes i'd be happy to when we before i filed i was aware that there were there were there were contracts out there that involved the partnership which by right should have been served should have been shared with limited partners but they weren't i can understand it being kept secret before the deal went down but once the deal was concluded there'd be no reason not to share contracts so everybody know what was affecting you know their limited partnership and uh uh one thing we learned was there was something called a contribution agreement and uh and something called a uh equity equity purchase agreement which we had no idea about didn't know its terms didn't know what it said didn't know anything and it uh it soon became apparent to me that it looked to me like i i might want to be i might want to be filing a derivative lawsuit in addition to the individual individual claims and that's that was one big example and then even more as we took depositions and all i realized there were a lot broader issues going on and uh when i refiled the complaint it was a considerably longer complaint did include did include derivative actions uh it hasn't been acted on in any final way but there was a there was a uh a partial summary judgment motion made or a, far, a partial motion dismissed made and uh a few things were taken out but others survived and so so the bottom line is right now it's headed it's headed on to a trial so so the changes we made may uh were important and we wouldn't we would have re we would not have reasonably known about those changes had we not done discovery and we couldn't do discovery uh until obviously we filed suit with whatever form of the suit so in answer your question we learned we learned quite a bit through that that we didn't we, we were as an attorney the best i had for my client was rumors you know they were saying well we heard this from joe and we heard that and you know i really can't write a complaint based on rumors uh my my clients were profoundly ignorant as well as gone down had gone down and the reason they were profoundly ignorant was because the general partner had refused to even share with them the basic contract even after they were completed after the after after done and uh so this was this was very important wouldn't we have to find that there was an abuse of discretion by the trial court in order to determine that there was uh, some error in the award of attorney fees yes uh yes your honor uh, we've argued a number of uh errors and, and abuse of discretion uh the, the the first one was when we came up with a 12c motion to argue it uh at the time we had just started a negotiation with judge dale uh, judge gale jim gale from uh from greensboro and uh we were hoping that's gonna be the end of it and and in light of that uh i i stood up and asked the court and and we're, we're making pretty good progress here judge gale gale thinks so uh, I wonder if we could hold discovery and and hold off doing anything, any expense by anybody until we, until we reach some kind of conclusion on this, and and a judge and a judge said, uh, no, I want you to keep on doing discovery, just like you were, and keep on negotiating if you like, and there was no suggestion from the court that he really thought I ought to withdraw the case or he really ought to thought to throw it out. I mean, instead he was he was telling me I needed to go forward. And needed to do something and and so i i pretty much was bound to do that so i i thought that was abuse of discretion because it's supposed to be clear to me that i should dismiss my case by what was said which i frankly wasn't clear to me uh it certainly was clear to the court if the court felt that way and the court should have said i'm getting ready to dismiss this don't do any more discovery or or whatever uh, so, uh, rule 41 uh yes. doesn't provide any standalone authority to impose attorney's fees it it's a statute that references the availability of other sources of attorney's fees. So in your view, what is the statutory authority in this case that the trial court relied on to impose the attorney's fees? Uh, 621. So that deals with non-justiciable issues. It does. And I'm, uh, I'm a little concerned that they're, they're, that that's unfortunate wording in this particular case because the word justiciable has two meanings yes one is the very technical concept you know we often think of it as from article three in the federal courts the case or controversy concept so you have subject matter jurisdiction then you have 
these justiciability issues, standing, ripeness, mootness. Yes. The flaw, I think we all acknowledge, and the case was one that could be described as standing. You need to bring a derivative action. These were the wrong named plaintiffs. Yes. Is that, in your view, when you say justiciable in 6-21.5, is that what justiciable means? My point of non-justiciable is, 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 to put it in plain layman's terms, is where the, where the case is garbage. It's got no business being there. For example, if you look at other non-justiciable cases, they say things like, it was already past the statute of limitations. When he, when he refiled the case, it was dead already. There was, he had no business being in court. I don't think non-justiciable necessarily means you made a flaw in pleading. You, you should have included more, should have done, worded things a little differently. And, and, I, and I think this, this court in the Brisson case supports that view. They say expressly that part of the reason you're supposed to be able to do a dismissal of those, those circumstances is to clean it up, to, uh, to, to make things that were, as it were, non-justiciable or missing elements to put them in there, to even factual errors, to put them in there. And it's, uh, it's an important saving grace, and I think that's particularly important uh, on cases involving uh, these sort of problems, like a hidden contract and that sort of thing. So, so and I assume I, in your view then, if a plaintiff filed a case in which the plaintiff ultimately lacked standing, yes. and so the trial court, it wasn't a voluntary dismissal, the trial court dismissed the case for lack of standing, yes. you wouldn't automatically get attorney's fees under 6-21.5 that that word justiciable there means essentially you'd filed as it was frivolous. You were on notice that there was no reasonable, rational basis to pursue this claim and pursued it anyway. I, At I, what I point, I'm sorry. Uh, in this case then, that suggests that there must be a point at which a trial court in order to impose fees here determines, okay, you knew you shouldn't go forward any further. Yes. And can we, in your view, can we look at this order and say that the court was doing that, parsing out these, I'm gonna impose attorney's fees for these portions of the case? Um, um, you know, from some point where you had gone far enough, you, you should have known now and everything forward? Or was this just, I'm imposing attorney's fees because I've concluded your entire action was non-justiciable? I think the court in this scenario would be, should be looking for uh, bad conduct, something that's wrong, something that, something that re reasonable attorneys, for want of a better word, would know that this was, this should not be done. This is, this is, this is gross error. I think that's what we're looking for here. And I, and I think that's borne out by by the rules of dismissal anyway. You know, when you see the, uh, those people in those cases have made many errors. They have, they've made mistakes in the law. They've made mistakes in the facts. The courts say, that this court says, uh, as a Brisson case, uh, we don't care as long as, long as you uh, clean it up by dismissal and come back and make it right. We don't care, and as long as it's not in bad faith. If it's in bad faith, you know, you're going to be punished. Bad things are going to happen to you, and they, they do happen to you, and rightly so. So uh, I think in short, when, it, when, when this was dismissed without prejudice, I think the judge should have let it be and, and let there be normal damages, as it would normally when you, when you, when you reform a case and refile it. Uh, I appreciate the fact that the case needed more work. That's why I wanted to dismiss it and reform it. That's, that was the whole point. Uh, counselors, a follow-up. Yes. In, 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 and I'm looking for a clarification. Yes. In reading your briefs, I uh, struggled with whether you were actually arguing that because of the uh, uh, in, incorporation by reference to, um, to some documents that there was a, a breach of fiduciary duty in your, your allegations. If you, have you abandoned the fact that there's not a direct claim here or how are you arguing and how are you using that argument? Was it to say that it was reasonable for you to continue to believe or do you still continue to believe that you, um, that you actually pled a direct claim? I, I, the, I, I've struggled with understanding what your position was, if you could yeah, clarify it for me. I, I, I will. Uh, let's just say for the sake of discussion that the judge ruled that very day, as judges often do, and say, well, Mr. Harris, I just thought you could get out of and dismiss you for 12C. I think that we would have a legitimate reason to appeal that down here for that uh, based on the fact that there, uh, there, there were independent claims there, there were personal claims there. Uh, you may have seen we, we cited the contract itself said this was a contract with each other, not just with the company. Each of the people were contracting with each other. 
and when uh, and when a contract is is violated under those circumstances, do have an individual claim. Now, I'm not suggesting that I don't think it's a better idea to do derivative two. When I refiled, I did individual and derivative, but I am suggesting that we thought it was a decent claim. We filed it. As I got more into it, I thought I really got to have derivative in here. You know, this, this is this is from what I've learned. That's that's obvious. This is a uh, a fault against the uh, corporation as well, against excuse me, against the uh, limited partnership. And that's your question. And uh, so you you filed a, uh, I guess a first amended complaint, then a second amended complaint. Um, yes. Have any of the causes of action from the second amended complaint been included? I guess in this new action, and have survived. Uh, yes, sir. They have. Which which claims or. The, the, what are the, is the nature of the claims that have previously been pled that currently serve? The uh, breach of fiduciary duty is still going forward. And the, the judge, uh, the, the court did throw out some of the individual claims not based on this, because by then we had a derivative claim too, but based on the fact that the general partner had signed not for the limited partners, as you might think, but had signed for the, for the general, general partner individually. And so the court felt like we didn't have a good signature, in other words, on the uh, on these contracts we were contesting in answer question. So it, it looks like that your various causes of action in your second amended complaint all have to do with breach of contract. Um, where, wh when and where was this breach of fiduciary duty raised? I, I'm sorry, I didn't quite follow that. When the, uh, I'm looking at your second amended complaint. Oh, yes. Uh -huh. And your second amended complaint seems to have various causes of action that all address contract claims. Yes. Where is the breach of fiduciary duty claim that you say still uh, uh, has vitality in the current suit? When that's in uh, that's in a that's in a document stop before you. It's uh, it's in the uh, it's it's in a new complaint under under uh, the Article Seven. So, so so my question was. Which of the prior claims? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Which of the prior claims that you made are currently viable in the current suit? I believe it's that one, uh, the breach of fiduciary duty in number seven. Okay. I just and read through the I, second I, I amendment have, complaint. I, I may have to stand be corrected if it's not in those complaints, but I believe that it was. It certainly came up during depositions and all that sort of thing. Well, it's not in the second amended complaint. All right. And I don't believe we have the first amended complaint in our record. So none of the contract claims that were alleged in the second amended complaint are viable. No, they're going forward, Your Honor. They are viable. They're in the new complaint too. The breach of contract. Yes, sir. There, uh, the breach of contract is pled under number one, under number one of the uh, of the new of the newly filed complaint, which is you know after we took a dismissal without prejudice and refiled it, and uh, that that. That part of the complaint is all about uh, that part of the complaint is all about breach of contract, and I'm actually uh, uh, getting ready to file a summary judgment in favor of because we think it's a matter of law they breached the contract there. And answer your question. Now, I also wanted to speak to some what, things. What proportion of the attorneys fees that are awarded here is for the discovery, the cost of the discovery that was conducted? Do you, roughly, do you have an estimate? I. I I don't know exactly. I, I took uh, I took two depositions of perhaps uh, several hours apiece, and I uh, for my discovery I asked for whatever had been given. This involved the purchase of general partner, and I asked for whatever was supplied uh, as due diligence for the purchase of the, of the general partner, and and so we got quite a bit of paperwork on that. Some of which was wasn't very useful, and I mean many pages. But and did you argue to the trial court that that, that discovery would be conducted, ultimately would be conducted in the refile case anyway? Uh, I did. I did. I, I said we haven't wasted time. We, we're still going forward. We're going to use what we already have. I, 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 of course, have done more discovery, and I haven't, I haven't redeposed those people at all that I deposed. We, we're using them just as they are. So under 6-21.5, under in your view, was conducting that discovery non-justiciable? I don't think so. I think it was just in, I thought it was in pursuit of what, what we said the problem was, a breach of contract. And uh, uh, I thought it was taken in good faith and 
certainly the first thing we would have had to know in the new complaint had we not done discovery, we would have had to have the information that had been supplied during the, uh, during the due diligence, which is exactly what we had to have anyway. So it, it took us a long way down the road where we didn't have to ask questions again, didn't have to take depositions again and answer questions. And uh, a counselor, if I might follow up to Chief Justice yes. Beauty's question, uh, and I'll phrase it perhaps in a little different way that might help me understand. Can you point me in either of your two amendments or your original complaint where you actually alleged the contract issue? I know it's been discussed. You, you say that it was brought up in discovery, and it's now, it sounds like the focus of this second suit, this, this refiled suit. suit. But can you point to me in the allegations, the actual language, where you, if we look at this from a standing position, did you actually say that? Did you actually pled it? That there was a breach of contract? Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, but can that you point the, me to the language? I know you say you did, but I'd like to know uh, how you you you. Uh, I, I think it's difficult to read the complaint without seeing that it's, a, it's alleging breach of contract. I mean, it's that, that's what it's all about. Well, the way I read the allegations is that you had. Uh, incorporated by reference the document and then have since made an argument about it. And I, I did not see the, the language that you actually pled that way, but I'm very open to hearing how that might be because I may have missed something. Yes, that's true. Uh, but part of the breach of contract had to do with the fact that there were two sections, uh, 14.5, and, and, and uh, 13.4, which had to, uh, which were plain in the contract that said that certain people could not, could not purchase the general partner. And we believed that that applied to the, uh, to Cumberland Hospital. So we said they had violated 14.5 in particular, uh, because it said that if, if, if the person purchasing, person or entity purchasing the, uh, uh, the general partner was in direct competition with them, which we contended hospital the surgery center was uh that that was a breach of contract that we we pled that specifically well if i might follow up the way i one way to read your uh, uh allegations um well let me phrase it differently is it your position that by incorporating that contract by reference that that would cover this issue of the breach of contract not all by itself no uh, so what else would be required the, the you simply have to plead the elements of breach of contract, that there was a contract which we pled, the 1995 agreement, that it, that it was uh, that, that it was breached and there were damages. We pled all three of those things. Well, thank and, you. Ar and argued that to the court as well. I, I'll and the court didn't have a problem with that. The court had a problem with the fact that they were, in, they were individual, you know, individual damages. That's, that's what the court seemed to be uh, concerned about. Uh, right. For it to get to be an individual claim, it would have to be a properly read contract claim, I believe, and yes. pled. And so that, that's And we pled contract. And I, that's, I, I, well, then, excuse me, why would the court then have a problem with your having standing in a direct suit if that was properly pled, if that were properly pled? Well, I don't know, uh, because the court kind of talked both ways. The court at one point said some things that made me think we were going to survive. The court said some other things principally about the derivative made me think we were going to survive. And, and I frankly don't know how the court was going to rule for sure. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I also raised the issues, which I don't want to neglect to mention. Uh, there, there, there were some odd circumstances in this case where uh, evidence was allowed in that we were uh, not allowed to see and not allowed to rebut. Uh, now, We've all seen things allowed in sometimes or reviewed in camera, and we appreciate what those are and all, but 99.9% uh, of the time, one party stands up and says, because of its personal nature or whatever, we want this viewed in camera. And you, you have a debate about there or not. What was odd about this was that the court, without anybody asking, without anybody saying there was anything ought to be viewed, just said flat out, I'm going to view this in camera, and didn't allow me to see it at all or argue about it. And uh, this went... Uh, this is something covered by uh, North Carolina law, it, where the claim or defense turns upon a factual adjudication, constitutional rights of the litigant to an adequate fair hearing requires that he be apprised of all the evidence received by the court and given an opportunity to test, explain, and rebut it. 
Henri Gupton. That's that's a 1953 your your decision. Uh, and and then another oddity occurred. We had actually finished in the sense that they had made their arguments. I'd made my reply. I was all done. And the court had already said there weren't to be oral arguments. And the court then sent a memo and said, I'd like to see the material that wasn't included for the attorney's fees request. I'd like to see the part you didn't request attorney's fees for. And we, I thought that was right odd because, you know, what, what do you want to see? Something that's not, not being discussed at all. And it, it suggested, and the court never said they didn't consider it, it suggested the court was considering it in some sense. And if so, we thought that that fit very neatly under the, uh, under the Bandy case that this court decided a couple of years ago, uh, which, which said that you're, it's an abuse of discretion to consider evidence that uh, is, is not part of what you're supposed to consider, not, not, not part of the, what you're charged with deciding on. And the court was surely not charged with deciding uh, evidence about what wasn't being asked for for attorney's fees. And so that just, it, it just, just, a, just a true oddity. And uh, well, you did not, counsel, you did not reserve rebuttal time. Would you like to? Uh, yes, thank you. I'll hold, I'll hold the rest for rebuttal. Thank you. You're from the appellee. Please the court. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, my name is Susan Hackney and I am with KNL Gates LLP, LLP. Here today with me are my co-counsel Marsha Rushley and Daniel McClurg. We appear on behalf of Appalee Cumberland County Hospital System and also Cape Fear Valley Ambulatory Surgery Center LLC. The issue that is before you today is whether the trial court awarded defendants attorney's fees as part of cost where the plaintiffs persisted in litigating their non-justiciable claims despite receiving notice from defendants on multiple occasions that plaintiffs lacked standing to bring their individual claims. Defendants only sought fees to defend the second amended complaint. We did not seek any fees for defending against the original complaint or the first amended complaint. Sorry to interrupt you so early. Certainly. If I can just, am I correct in terms of the litigation timeline here that there was no ruling from the trial court? You, you have be, so I'm, I'm trying to understand what happened before the time period at which you say fees are starting. The, time, the filing of the second amendment complaint, the time at which this statute 6-21 should kick in. And it appears that you had filed a motion to stay, and that was denied. So at the motion to stay stage, the trial court could have said, uh, and, and I believe that you, uh, in that motion, indicated your intention to raise the standing issue. The trial court could have looked at the pleadings and said, there's, there's no justiciable issue here. I'm staying these proceedings. Let's have a hearing on your motion to dismiss and get this out of court before anyone has to spend any more time litigating, correct? But that didn't happen. In fact, the stay was denied. Well, the stay um, was denied. We had indicated that we were going to file a motion to dismiss based on a lack of justiciable claims. Right. Um, we briefed the motion to dismiss. That did go to um, briefing, and then um, the plaintiffs asked if they could amend their complaint. And so at that time, the trial court accepted their amended complaint as filed. And wasn't that a second opportunity for the trial court to say, this amendment would be futile? There's no justiciable issue here. There's no reason to amend this complaint. I've read your motion to dismiss and briefs. I agree with you. And let's get this out of the way because it, there's no issue. The trial court could have, but it was also at that time incumbent upon the plaintiffs to look at our pleadings. And we went into great detail about why their claims were non-justiciable, that they lacked standing 
um, to bring those individual claims because they had not alleged one of the two exceptions to the general rule that an individual cannot bring claims um, for the benefit of the partnership itself, you know, on its own. Um, well, and so I believe that while the trial court could have, also at that time, the plaintiffs could have taken a dismissal. Right. Well, I mean, there's always a, a motion to dismiss, and if it, I mean the the plaintiff said here, he said, I didn't know for sure how the court would rule. I mean, isn't that correct? He didn't know for sure how the court was going to rule until the court actually ruled. But I think it's different when you look back at your complaint and see that the law says clearly, in order to bring an individual claim, you have to file one of two exceptions. Either that you have a special duty that's alleged or that there is um, a separate and distinct injury. Right. Well, and let me just finish my sentence here. Course, so when, when plaintiffs, based on their responsibility to look to see if their claim was justiciable, there was nothing, they, they clearly had not pleaded that. And they could have at that time dismissed their claim and, and then um, re-alleged. But what they did do instead was they amended their complaint and still didn't even fix it. They, they amended their complaint and went forward with only individual claims. And you, you, had the, you had the ability to seek a hearing on your motion to dismiss, correct? You could have asked the trial court to rule on the proposition that you're saying they should have acknowledged and just... We did not get to hearing on the motion to dismiss. But, but you had the ability, couldn't you have filed a request for a hearing or notice, set it on I mean, the calendar? Or we we were going to until the plaintiffs asked to amend their complaint and the, the trial court, they attached it to their brief and the trial court took that amendment and considered it filed. If you look at their order, it says we've accepted as filed the second amended complaint. And so it, I believe it didn't go, yeah, it didn't go to hearing because they accepted that. Um, and we didn't have that opportunity to do that. And at that point, we did not know whether if, you know, I mean, we went forward with judgment on the pleadings because we wanted to make certain that this didn't get amended and amended and amended. And you did have a hearing on that motion? And the judgment for the yep. pleadings? We did have a hearing on that motion. And there still, though, wasn't an order from the court saying, yes, defendants are absolutely right. On the pleadings, there's no justiciable issue here. The court made it pretty clear in there, if you read the transcript, which is in, in the record, the court made it pretty clear that they did not see a justiciable issue. They um, discussed the fact that there was nothing in the pleadings alleging a right to vote. There was nothing in the pleadings that stated that there was a breach of the individual section that provided for a right to vote. And as you know, this, this is a, a notice pleading state and in order to allege a breach of contract, we have to have notice of what provisions of the contract were breached. And those uh, statements made by the trial court from the bench were in the hearing on the motion for judgment on the pleadings in September of 2020? They were in the judgment, motion for judgment on the pleadings. I forget the date, you're probably right. Okay, thank you. Um, a couple of things that I want to point out on your earlier questions. Um, all you had asked about the direct claims um, in the newly filed case, all of those claims have been dismissed. Only what stands are individual claims now. Um, you also, Mr. Harris spoke of can, the, can you can you repeat that only what remains? only derivative claims remain in the case that is still live. 
Um, I also want to point out that um, do you, I think. Do you dispute your friend's contention that some of the discovery that was conducted after the filing of the Second Amendment complaint may be relevant to the claims that still remain? You read my mind. I was just going there. Um, I think it was in response to your question, Justice Berenger. Um, you asked what they learned and how they related to standing. The 1995 LP agreement, which is what plaintiffs allege <coughs> provided them with the voting rights that they say were breached, which gave them standing, was the contract between the limited partners. Dr. Woodcock, the plaintiff, well, all three of them, I mean, all four of them, Woodcock, all four plaintiffs, let me just say that that way, um, are limited partners. And so they had that contract. Moreover, the contribution agreement, although I would contend that that contribution agreement had nothing to do with individual standing, those documents were provided to plaintiffs prior to the second amended complaint being filed. And, you know, as I said, we didn't seek fees until the second amended complaint. We gave them benefit of the doubt that maybe they didn't understand. But after our mission to dismiss, we had set it out very clearly as to what um, was required in order to bring individual claims. And there was no change to bring derivative claims in their second amended complaint. Um, Another thing that Mr. Um, Harris said, um, and I believe uh, I'm Excuse me, counsel. Um, uh, in follow-up to uh, Justice Dietz's question, um, can you specifically answer the question, was any of the, dis in your view, is any of the discovery that was uh, discovered, that, that was found, or not found, but discovered in the first uh, suit now being used, if you could just give that in simple answers as opposed to giving examples? It, it, do you think that some of that is being used? I don't believe so, Your Honor. Thank you. Counsel, just to follow up on that, suppose that um, some of the discovery in the current litigation, uh, or suppose some of the discovery in the prior litigation um, is relevant to the current case, how would that affect our analysis? Some of the discovery in the current case? Some of the discovery that was conducted um, in the first lawsuit, suppose that some of that is pertinent to the current litigation. How would that affect our analysis? Because I, don't, I understand what you're saying, Your Honor. Um, I believe I understand it. I don't think that that affects the analysis here because even if it's used, the discovery that's used later, I think is what you're getting at, um, it did not relieve their burden for their continuing duty to look as to whether that was a justiciable claim. And they could have conducted that discovery after they dismissed and refiled and gotten the same thing. Some of the discovery um, that plaintiffs claim in their, in their briefs before you are one of the things is the PPP loans. The PPP program had not even been put into effect at the time of the second amended complaint. And so it, it wasn't, it was never alleged, nor could it have been alleged. And we actually had filed a BCR 10.9 discovery dispute claiming that that wasn't a proper subject for discovery because there was no allegation in the second amended complaint that went to the, the PPP loan. There also was no claim, um, just to clarify this, for the breach of fiduciary duty in the Second Amendment complaint, as you said, Justice Newby. 
Um, um, and, and to be clear, the only derivative claims are surviving at this point in the new litigation. That's correct. So just, you know, very straightforward, in a straightforward manner, why is this just not a typical failure state of claim, uh, like subject matter jurisdiction? What makes this different? Why should attorney fees be awarded here when not in the run-of-the-mill 12B1, 12B6? Because ordinarily at a 12B1 or 12B6, you haven't already been told that your claims are non-justiciable. You haven't been told. And we had gone, like I said, our brief went through all of the case law. And as attorneys, we are required to analyze that and determine how that affects our claims. And so that's why, though, that we didn't request fees until the second amended complaint. We gave them the benefit of the doubt that prior to that, maybe they didn't understand derivative claims. And then they persisted in filing a second amended complaint that did not allege derivative claims, and they persisted in litigating in the face of that information. And I think that that is the difference here. They also, um, as, as we have talked about in our briefs, there were Plaintiffs produced 153,000 documents in their um, response to our discovery request. And if you'll look at the affidavit of Jen Bortmus, which is in the record, um, I can give you the page number if I can look through my notes in a minute, but um, only they claim that, that our discovery was so egregious because it went back prior to 2008 to 1995. But only 310 of those 153,000 documents, only about 2% were prior to 2008. Um, also, if you'll look in our motion, now I'm forgetting exactly where it is, um, but plaintiffs produced, and we have a chart in one of our pleadings that shows the spam emails that were in there. And we put the numbers of them, and they're things like political ads and other things like that. I added those numbers up, which weren't added in our, in our brief, but I added the numbers that we have in those charts. 23,000 of those documents were spam emails. And they produced those without obviously reviewing their documents, or else they would have held them back. Um, and again, Jim Bortmus's affidavit is pretty, pretty telling on that in terms of what she shows um, happened with the, with the discovery. She is with our um, EDATA, our electronic data anal analysis. She's an attorney, and she provided a, an analysis of that, that data for us. And so that is a difference to Justice Newby, is that what we were required to deal with during the course of the litigation was unnecessary. So we're here on, with an abuse of discretion standard. And so I'm looking at paragraph 24 of the trial court's order, which I think is, is kind of where he summarizes, um, you know, he goes through his reasoning for finding that the plaintiffs lack standing, and this is the paragraph, and you can point me somewhere else if there's a better place, but where, if, if we're assessing abuse of discretion, we have to see was there a reason, uh, was this a reasoned decision of the trial court? Mm -hmm. And so I'm taking paragraph 24 as where he articulates his reason, and what I'm struggling with is how, what he says here, wouldn't be true in every case where a trial court dismisses for lack of standing or dismisses generally. Because 
the, the mere fact that a motion to dismiss is filed means the plaintiffs are on notice that the defendants think that there's no standing. But in most cases, that's the issue before you. In other words, the, there was one motion to dismiss and then a motion for attorney's fees. So in other words, if, if after our motion to dismiss and the First Amendment complaint, plaintiffs had dismissed their complaint, I don't believe that we would have or could have applied for attorney's fees. We would have applied for costs, but probably not attorney's fees because they would have realized, they would have taken the situation and not perpetuated litigation in the face of that information. It's not, I mean, you have a, an amend, a, a complaint, a first amended complaint. You get information that you're required to look at, and then you move forward and file without even correcting or attempting to correct and file derivative claims. And then you continue through way after the hearing, and in, I mean, I think it's fairly telling, after the hearing when they filed their notice, I mean, their motion for, um, the motion for voluntary dismissal, they state in that pleading that they're going to refile their claim to bring additional claims and to bring derivative claims. And I think one thing to look at, obviously, you're correct, Justice Earls, that, that this is an abuse of discretion standard. I think before that, getting to the justiciable issue, that is a de novo review um, as to whether there was a justiciable issue. And then there is an abuse of, of discretion standard. And at that point, it's left to the discretion of the trial judge um, who, in, in his order, Please let me find the finding of fact real quickly for you here. In the fee order, the, the second order, mm -hmm. in finding of fact number 15, the trial judge states, in this case, the court is intimately familiar with the course of litigation and has intimate familiarity with the issues, the litigation strategies employed, the discovery and motion practice undertaken before the trial. It has an ample basis on which to opine regarding the match between the task at hand and the skill and experience of the attorneys addressing those tasks. But it also shows that he was very familiar with what had gone on in those, I think it's about 10 months, it's almost a year, from when the second amended complaint was filed and when the notice of voluntary dismissal, I mean, excuse me, not the notice of voluntary dismissal, the motion for voluntary dismissal was filed. We did not seek fees after that um, as well. Uh, a follow-up, uh, excuse me, Counselor. Um, one of the questions I posed to um, your friend on the other side uh, was the business or the, the situation of the issue of the breach of contract and pleading in that, assuming, uh, and it, well, it's not assuming, but apparently um, the um, business court judge determined that that was not properly pled. In that second amendment, is it your position that they could have pled a direct uh, claim uh, and had their uh, cause of action survive? Of the standing survive, or is it your position that there are only derivative claims possible in this particular conflict? Um, looking at this issue, they could have have. Let me put it this way: the the um, individual claims were not dismissed on the same issue. In the case, it's still before um, the business court. Um, I believe that the um, if they had pled 
the proper you know, exceptions and the violations of the contract, et cetera, that would have provided them standing regarding the, that issue, yes. Thank you for the clarification. I want to address the in-camera in review briefly. Um, plaintiffs claim that they did not have the opportunity to object to that, and we would disagree with that. I do believe that um, it came down in the order um, for the motion for fees, um, and then we filed the application for fees, and at that point, plaintiffs had the opportunity to file a response, but didn't object in that response at all to the fact that they didn't have that information. Even so, so basically, there is no objection that has been properly made or timely made in order to raise that issue. Furthermore, there is plenty of information within the record um, in order for them to have had notice and the opportunity to respond. Um, in the Bandy case, that was a notice, um, and Justice Earls, you're very familiar with that case, um, but the no, uh, motion uh, sanctions as opposed to cost, number one. Um, but here, they knew that they, they had already been told that their fees were going to be awarded against them. So they had notice of that. Secondly, they had the opportunity based on our application for fees. We had in there lots of information um, and they did not object to the amount of, of total hours at all. They didn't object to the hourly rates. They haven't objected to the um, skill of the attorneys. And so they had the opportunity and did take that opportunity. I mean, through their brief, they, they have lots of complaints in there um, about what they think should not be correct. Um, but I don't think that that, they did have the opportunity to respond. And in the WFH, make sure I get that, that um, wait one moment, make sure I've got the case right. It's um, three initials starting with the W and then it's Linwood case <laughs> that's cited in our brief. Um, in that case, the Court of Appeals awarded fees based on a four-page affidavit from an attorney and found that the fees were, affirmed the trial court there and didn't have any invoices at all. And I don't think that that's unusual for the um, plaintiffs not to, I mean, many cases in the, in the business court that we cited to don't have, um, the plaintiffs don't have the invoices to review, that they do hold those in camera. Um, finally, I want to talk about um, very quickly the findings of fact in these orders, the only finding of fact that plaintiffs have object objected to is finding of fact number one. They have not objected to any other findings of fact. And finding of fact number one is the one that um, says that this case relate, relates to the ownership and operation of Fayetteville Ambulatory Surgery Center Partnership, which owns and operates an ambulatory surgery center in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, I think there are a couple of things there that are important to note. Um, if you'll look at the, the rest of that sentence, it goes on to say, more specifically, plaintiff's claims arose out of alleged breaches of the second amended and restated partnership agreement of FASC. And then I think it's important to take note that if you look at all of the findings of fact um, that they didn't object to in the court's order. For instance, the one that I just, just quoted about the fact that the court had ample information on um, in which to opine regarding the match between the task at hand and the skill and experience of the attorneys addressing those tasks. Um, 
they also did not object um, to any of the other findings, but just notably um, that the court had reviewed the invoices and associated spreadsheets and generally finds that they reflect appropriate amounts of professional time devoted to the various tasks undertaken by defendants' counsel in this matter and consequently finds them to be reasonable amounts of fees for such work. Um, they also have available um, category-specific specific hours by attorney for four different categories of task. One was document review, um, there were two depositions, and then the 12C motion. And they haven't objected to any of those um, findings on that information. One of the things I think is important to keep in mind here is that Rule 41 actually states um, that attorney's fees shall be awarded if another statute provides for that. And so I believe that that is um, where we are here today, that the court awarded those fees pursuant to um, Rule 41 also pursuant to North Carolina General Statute 6-21.5 and then 7A-305, which allows for cost for attorney's fees as part of cost. And we would respectfully request that you affirm the trial court's decision in both of those, both of those orders. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. Rebuttal. I have several things I'd like to refute and answer at least one question. The first thing is uh, this statement, no opportunity to object. The normal course of events is that someone makes a motion for, for things to be put in private to the judge, and, uh, and then there's an objection or not, and then the judge rules on it. What happened here was without anybody mentioning it, without anybody bringing it up, nothing said, not, not a word said, the judge issued an order that he would, they would view these attorney's fees in camera. And, and, and they, they wouldn't be shared with me, and I couldn't see them, I couldn't argue about them. Uh, uh, as I understand the rule to be, if a judge makes an order, the next place to take it up to is the court above, you. It's not to object to him or raise something then. Uh, when the judge did something out of an order, a little later is when he ordered that, uh, or not he ordered, he, he had his clerk request that he be given attorney's fees that weren't being requested. I did object to that. And I, and, I, and I reiterated in there that I also objected to, to this going on, that this is the second time this had happened that he'd awarded something nobody asked for. And so I did object uh, in writing. That's in the record. Next, uh, when you heard these various things stated here about what, was, what the court found as findings, I would point out that uh, the court nine times on critical issues made no findings of fact. Uh, that, that appears in a record on pages 735 through 737. And uh, in the matter of MM, uh, Court of Appeals case, it says, uh, the trial court's required to resolve material disputed factual issues by the findings of fact. Findings by a party attorney asserted some fact or felt some particular way without a finding is not sufficient. Uh, findings must be sufficiently specific to enable the appellate court, appellate court to review decision. You're in that situation now. You don't know if those things are true or not true that she said up here because there was no finding by the court that they were true or, or weren't. They simply said the, uh, the defendant felt this way, the defendant felt this way, went back and forth nine times. You should read that. There's no findings there. Uh, uh, next, it was mentioned that uh, it was mentioned that there was a, a PPP loan that actually was quite a triumph of, of the discovery because in asking questions in a deposition of Sandra Williams, this is one of the things we learned. We learned that they had applied for and gotten a $700,000 PPP loan, which was wrong in two ways. One way was the contract required to be voted on by a two-thirds vote of the limited partners, which it hadn't been, and they had conceded that. Uh, the next way was that it was actually illegal because if the company that owns the general partner has more than a certain amount of employees, I think the number is 500, 
or 5,000, they can't get a PPP loan until legal. And so we pointed all this out, and as a result of our action here, they had to pay, they had to give the money back to the federal government, and otherwise, otherwise FASC would have been guilty of a crime. They would have been charged federally, at least investigated federally, so, so that was a plus, not a minus. That's something we learned. Additionally, uh, just, just bear, you asked what things recipient learned other than that. Well, uh, the first thing we learned was the, uh, the CFO, Sandra Williams, testifying under oath, testified that there had never been a vote on any of these things. These were things that plainly changed the contract, 14.5 I mentioned earlier, that plainly changed the contract, and she admitted there had never been a vote. And I asked her, I asked her why. She said, well, there didn't need to be a vote because we're not really in competition. Uh, and, and, and so these were all things we learned, and we, and we, uh, we also learned that they had divided this, this, this very odd agreement uh, by which they passed limited partner shares to the general partner, and then about 15 minutes later on the same day, April 1st, 2019, they got the same shares back and also bought the general partner. And the reason that's significant is because they were forbidden to be owner of 100% of the general partner. They were forbidden, but they did it anyway. That's the breach of contract. And, uh, and so that was a very important thing we learned in my time's up. Thank you, Council. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much. Mr. Clark.